Alright, today we will uh, continue with our study of Moshe. I thought that was interesting um, to uh, I was thinking of Moshe just because we read the McGill recently I was thinking of Moshe as the one who takes on Amalek. What got me to think about this was the following point about Megillah Esther. Megillah Esther is actually a very interesting book in terms of the various texts of the Tanakh that it references. For example, there are four or five main texts that it references. One is the story of Yosef, which appears in the Megillah. It's constantly being referenced in the Megillah, many, many ways, which is well documented, well known it always struck me that is the Yosef story is very important for the Megillah because Yosef is the Jew in exile and he's living in Mitzrayim and the Megillah, the culture of Achashverosh, the culture of Mitzrayim have many similarities for example there's a place where people don't remember anything uh, it's a place where you live for the moment it's a place where you see things and take them. And these are all Mitzrayim, Achashvim. Mitzrayim, uh, sort of central pieces of their culture. And this appears in the Megillah as well. What's missing in the Yosef story, however, is Amalek. That we don't have in the story of Yosef. We have Paro, we have Mitzrayim, but we don't have Amalek. So I was thinking that, what got me to think in terms of the Megillah was that the story of the Megillah, the frame of the Megillah begins with Achashverosh, ends with Achashverosh it begins with these lavish excessive parties it ends with him levying a, a, a tax of mass and that it struck me that and it's actually relevant to this time of the year it struck me that the Chumash actually has a similar frame and the frame I'm referring to is not the palaces of Achashverosh but rather the story of the creation of the, of the world, especially the story of the Garden of Eden in the beginning of the Torah. And the similar parallel story, different but parallel, is the story that is, is the descriptions that appear at the end of the book of Shemot, presently reading those stories of the building of the Mishkan. The Mishkan, as many have noted, has very striking parallels to the, to the creation stories of the Chumash. Many, many parallels. Uh, Medrash speaks of them. The Hamalev was collected some of them. Talks about that. And it's interesting to think of this as, a, as the frame. In other words, one way to think about the Torah is instead of thinking about five books or four books, we can also think about two books. The first two books of the Torah. They start with Ganadin and creation and they end with the creation they start with the Malacha of God in the beginning of the Chumash they end with the Malacha of Tzavel and his workers at the end of Sefer Mishmot. they begin with six days of creation and the idea of the Holy Sabbath the seventh day, the Shabbat and the Mishkan of course both in the instructions to build the Mishkan and the building of the Mishkan it always connects the Mishkan to Shabbat connects it in the first instance at the end of the instructions we have the Shabbat and in this week's parasha Vayakel it begins with Shabbat it starts with Shabbat and then the actual construction of the Mishkan it has in each instance the uh, Kruvim 
are very present in the first story the Kruvim prevent you from entering into the, into, back into the garden they block your path but in the second story the Kruvim are the central feature of the Mishkan they hover above the ark and they're the place from which God speaks in the first creation story the key and interesting piece of the creation story in the Garden of Eden is the uh, question of the, this particular tree of knowledge Eitzadat and the forbidden the knowledge being forbidden but in the Mishkan we have the opposite in the Mishkan the whole purpose of the Mishkan in the words of the Chumash is, is, is to know Viyadu you build the Mishkan says the Torah in chapter 29 in order that you know that I took you out of Egypt for the purpose of dwelling amongst you and not only that the very idea of the Ark this is actually a very important point the Ramban was the one who emphasizes this it's a very important point the Ark is the central vessel of the Mishkan but the Ark is also the place from which God speaks so that means that the purpose of the Mishkan the Ramban claims is, for, is to allow God to continue to speak to allow God to continue to command in Gan Eden is the first command there's one command but in the Torah there are many commands there's the, there are commands of Sinai and the covenant and then they're going to be the continuous and continual commands and they all come from the Mishkan. They come, in the words of the Chumash, from between the Kruvim. In short, the Mishkan, the Murakha of Betzalel, even the name Betzalel, Betzalel is Tzalem Elohim, and his father's name is Uri. Uri is our light. God's image, the son of light. God's image is this, the last creation of, of chapter 1. God created the human being in God's image. Light is the first creation. By Yomer Elohim Yihiar, by Yihiar. So B'tzavu represents the full range of creation from, from, from the end to the beginning, from Z to A. B'tzavu ben Uri is, is his name, and he does Mulacha. So the parallels to the Mishkan, as well noted by Midrash, are obvious. I would add another one to this, by the way. That the Torah begins, first creation narrative, the Torah begins by saying that God uh, in the beginning God created heaven and earth and uh, Torah says that in the beginning the earth was tohu vavohu the earth was chaos chaotic and uh, and v'choshech there was darkness over the face of Tahom and then the Chumash says v'ruach Elohim merachefet al hamayim the spirit of God hovered above the waters so the Torah begins what does it mean the spirit of God hovered above the waters what does Ruach Elohim mean the spirit of God hovered above the waters what is that so some of the so some of the Targumim say I think it's actually the simple shot that Ruach Elohim means God's wisdom Ruach Elohim means Chochmat Elohim the wisdom of God the spirit of God refers to the wisdom specifically what wisdom the wisdom to take take matter because the way the Chumash begins it doesn't say there's nothing there's something there's tohu vavohu there's chaos sounds like there is something there but it's, it has no form there's tohu and vohu so what is the wisdom the wisdom is to take stuff and to use it to fashion it in a beautiful way maybe in the best possible way that's wisdom 
Where else do we find somebody who has wisdom, Ruach Elohim? There are actually three characters in the Chumash who have Ruach Elohim. Two of them, I think, are... One of them I don't know in terms of this model. I don't think... I think it's different. But two of them are the same. The two that are the same are, first of all, Betzalel. We have this, this week's Parsha. Ruh Karati B'Shem says, God, behold, I have singled out, called by name, Betzalel ben Uri ben Chur. Right? What's the next verse? For Amalei Oto Ruach Elohim. I have filled him with the wisdom of God. That's what it says at two different places in the Torah, including this week's portion. I have filled him with the wisdom, wasn't it the wisdom of God, but Saul's filled with the wisdom of God. With Chachma, Bina, and Dat, all kinds of wisdom. And the ability to do all kinds of work. Right? To think thoughts. So what does that mean? What is it, what is it referred to? What, what is Bitzalel's genius? What is the genius? The genius is that he was given, and the Chumash emphasizes this, he was given all kinds of materials. People gave him things. They gave him silks, they gave him gold, they gave him silver, copper, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff they're giving him. What is, his, what is his responsibility? To take all the things that he's given, all these gifts, right? And from the gifts, to fashion a beautiful mishkan, right? To fashion beautiful garments, covered with tiferet, with dignity, majesty, honor, beauty. So that, that, that's called Ruach, he has Ruach Elohim. The Ruach Elohim of Bitzalel is identical to the Ruach Elohim of God in the first few verses of the Torah. It's the same thing. There's toll involved, there's stuff, there's chaos, there's matter. And the, the wisdom of God, Ruach Elohim, is to take everything and to fashion it in the best possible way. That's one person who has Ruach Elohim. There's another person in the Torah, there are actually two others, one of which I can't explain in this way, but the other guy, I can. Who else has Ruach Elohim? Who are the two first, Who are the other two people whom the Torah says has Ruach Elohim? Apart from Moses, Moses also has Ruach Elohim. But leave Moshe out of it. Moshe, I think, is a different situation. There are two other people who have Ruach Elohim. One is Yoshua. Isha Sheruach Bo, and Moses' task is to place his hands upon him and to fill him with Ruach Elohim. I would put Joshua and Moses in the same place. I don't think that Yoshua and Betzal are the same thing. I think Ruach Elohim in the case of Moshe means something else. Insight, understanding, but not for the purpose of building something. He builds a nation, but it's for the purpose of instruction, leadership. There's another person who has very specifically the same character, or characteristic of Ruach Elohim. Can we find such a person who has within him the Spirit of God? Who said that, first of all? was a rhetorical question. Is there anybody with such spirit of power said it? Said about Yosef. After Yosef interprets the dreams, Paral says, oh, can you find another person who has within him Ruach Elohim? What, what is the Ruach Elohim of Yosef? What is the cleverness or the wisdom of Joseph? It's actually identical to Betzalel. That he can, he can uh, form the government and, and make order out of the chaos of well, that's government. That's not okay. identical to Betzalel. But actually, it's identical to Betzalel. It's identical. Think about it. 
You don't think of it this way, but I'll explain when you'll think of it this way. What Joseph says is very simple. There can be 14 years ahead of us. In the first seven years, there's a ton of food. In the seven years after that, there's no food. So what does Joseph say? Here's, a, here's how you distribute the seven years of food. You don't use up the seven years of food in the good, in the good years. You store it. Of course, you store it under Pharaoh's control. So Pharaoh controls it. And then you dole out the food over the course of 14 years as opposed to, and you prepare for that. The wisdom is to understand it's coming, of course. But when you get these materials, these food, here's how you have to manage the food in order to accomplish, number one, to save the nation, and number two, to empower power. Those are the two goals of Joseph's, the two uh, consequences of Joseph's interpretation. But if you think about it, it's exactly what Pizarro does. He has these materials, and how do you use them in the best possible, or what God does in the first uh, in the first uh, chapter of the Torah, God takes the chaos, the matter, chaotic matter, matter with no form, and imposes on the matter form. That's the that's the that's the God's ruach. That's the wisdom in chapter one, and the wisdom of chapter of Joseph is the same. Take the produce of the seven years, and but but don't but use them in a most efficient way to achieve your goal of sustaining the nation. And of course with Bitzalel, it's obvious, that's obvious. Ruach Elohim means he has all of these gifts, all of these donations, but he has, to show, he has to figure out the best, how most effectively to use them. So that's the Malach. And the Torah uses, in short, Bikitzer, in short, what I said now could be a shir in and of itself, actually. It wasn't too bad. In short. But uh, that's not what I want to talk about today. But here's my point. My point is that the Mishkan, this is the important point, the Mishkan is the connections of the Mishkan. This is the point that people don't make. To see the Mishkan Ganadian connection, yes. But no one actually thinks about the next step. Given that that's the case, okay, then we have a sense the story is then complete. In other words, the Mishkan Ganadian, on one end, Ganadian creation on the other end says that one way to read the Chumash. One way. You can read it other ways. But one way to read it is to read the first two books of the Torah as one unit. If you do that, then the interesting question is, what is inside? What is, if you have a frame, the frame, you know, what's inside the frame is the question. And when you have a frame, what a frame tends to do is to highlight the things inside. So I would say that the Megillah actually picks this up. Megillah and Esther picks this up, but has a similar frame. Instead of the Mishkan, there's Achashverosh in his palaces. And I would add, by the way, that the word Mas that appears at the end of the Megillah, that the word Mas probably does not mean it. It may, be, it may mean a tax. We, 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 nowadays we seem a taxes. But I would say that the word Mas sometimes, usually in the, in the Bible, doesn't mean a straight up tax. What it means typically is, let's say, let's say the one, there are two people that levy taxes. Two main people that levy taxes. The main one is Shlomo. The tax of Shlomo is not money, actually. The main tax of Shlomo is labor. He actually conscripts, forces people to, to work. And he has shifts, big shifts of people who work on the, and what are they working doing basically? What do they do? They are building. 
The workers are building two different things. They spend seven years building the temple, and they also spend 13 years building his house. He spends twice as much time in his house as he does on the temple. Because Rashi, who's the sweetest person who ever lived, Rashi says, if he likes you. If he doesn't like you, he's not, but if he likes you, says Rashi, well, he spent seven years on the temple because he really wanted to get the job done. He was very concerned about the temple. The house, you know, not so important, so he spent 13 years. That's Rashi. But I think one gets the opposite impression. He may care more about the temple than the house, but he does care about his house. Okay, and so the mass is essentially slave labor, we call it. Just one second, slave labor. For, it means people don't have a choice. That's he's one, and, he, and to build. Who's the other person that that slave labor to build? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course. They're very similar, actually, in many ways. That's another conversation, but they're both builders. They're both building. With Paro, with Sarebim, So the two past slave masters of the Bible, Solomon is one, and Pharaoh is the other one. It's not an accident that the first thing Shlomo does in the book of Kings is to marry Pharaoh's daughter. It's actually first verse. I mean, if he kills his brother. But when he takes over the kingship, he marries Pharaoh's daughter. In short, the mas. why do I mention this? Because the mas of Achashverosh sits in chapter 1 of the Megillah. The person who jumps to mind in chapter 1 is most similar to Achashverosh. It's got to be King, King Solomon. Because what the, the operative word of chapter 1 of the Megillah, what jumps out at you in chapter 1 of the Megillah, one English word, excess. 180 day parties, drinking with no limits, you know, that is Rav, Rabim, and all that. It's exactly what the Torah says the king shouldn't do, actually. Lo Yarbe, Lo Yarbe, should have too much, too much money, should have too many wives. Money he has to kazoo and wives, there's no women. He has, you know, 127 government offices producing women for him every day, sending them to for these 12 month cosmetic treatments. In any event, so the, Shlo, the character of Shlomo, the Midrashim connect, not, not that the Midrashim compare him to Shlomo necessarily, they see Shlomo as much better, but the comparison to Shlomo was obvious, and in that spirit, to have the last verse of the Megillah, the last three verses, that Achashverosh levied a mas, reminds us of, uh, simultaneously of Solomon, but also of Pharaoh. What do you want to say back there? Well, at the very beginning, you said... God's speech from the ark, that was, uh, you were talking about Ramban? Or Ramban. Ramban. That's, that's what I'm going to say. The Torah says it. Ramban points it out. Right. No, no, but Ramban... Ramban uh, emphasized that very, yeah, very, very right. strongly in several right. different places in his commentary. Now, why do I mention all this? Because I'll get to the main point and get to motion in a minute. But let me see. That once you have the frame of the Megillah, it's very interesting. You have the frame of the Megillah. And then it struck me something else which is unusually interesting about Megillah Esther. And that is, is that there's a ton of stuff written about Megillah Esther, by the way. Except we got to work on it. There's so much stuff. Some is quite good, some is less good, but there's a lot, a lot of things. Some is bad. Some is very bad. Some is awful. Um, it's like anything else. There are all kinds of people. Point is, the the Medrash and the the Agadah of the Gemara are always comparing the holiday of Purim, the acceptance of Purim. They compare it to the acceptance of the uh, of the Torah. 
I'm not going to get into that now, but that's actually very interesting. I talked about that in other places. I'm not getting into that. But what, it, what it is interesting is this. If you think about Megillah Esther, it's structure. It's overall structure. What's interesting is, it's a very unusual book in the following sense. The book has nine plus chapters. Chapter 10 is three verses. The first eight plus chapters are a story. Pretty good story, too. The last half of the last chapter is not actually a story so much as it is a description of how the holiday of Purim comes into being through a series of, of letters through the people's own personal observance first and Mordechai sends letters around to change the holiday of Purim and the people accept it upon themselves and their children all those who would join it becomes an official holiday and then at the end of the Megillah there's a second letter that Esther and Mordecai send around to confirm the days of Purim, perhaps to add to the day of Purim as well, to make it official, an official holiday, as sealed, signed and sealed and delivered by Mordecai and Esther. And the word, the last was the words of Esther, Mamar Esther, Kiyam it's formalized through Esther. So what you have, actually, if you think about it, is the following. You have a long story, and at the end of the long story, you have, I would say, a legal, a legal section, a legal document, something that's set up as a, as, a, as, a, as a rule, as a law, namely the holiday of Purim, and it's set up, not, it's not so simple. First it has to be, uh, first it's, the people begin it, Mordechai changes it, one letter, then there's another letter to confirm it, I was thinking that actually and the holiday of Purim actually when Mordecai writes them the letter he tells them you can't just, just observe one day there have to be two days of Purim so what I've talked about in the last few weeks in other settings basically Atresha mostly Atresha is that if you think about the structure it's identical to the structure of the first two books of the Torah think about the first two books of the Torah <coughs> What are the first two books of the Torah? Basically, there's a story. That's the main thing. The book of Breshit is all stories. Stories. Book of Exodus, it's also a story. But in the book of Exodus, there are two places within the book of Exodus which much less a story and more of a legal uh, a discussion of, of law. There are two places. The first is chapter 12. That's the... <coughs> chapter and chapter 13 that deal with the carbon Pesach Paschal sacrifice in Egypt and beyond and also the holiday of what we call Passover which the Torah calls Chag HaMatzot Passover in the Chumash is always the 14th day of the month Chag HaPesach is the 14th the day you bring the carbon Pesach the 15th inaugurates Chag HaMatzot that's what the Torah says in chapter 12 it's the first legal section like Rashi in the Chumash, the first Rashi, asked the question, why did the Torah begin with Genesis, says Rashi? It should have begun with chapter 12 of Exodus, HaChodesh HaZeh Lachem, Rosh Chodeshim, because Rashi is seeing the Torah as a law book. So let's start with the laws. And the first set of laws is Exodus chapter 12, the Pas- Passover, which has two components. The 14th of, Passover, 14th of the first month is Passover, and the 15th of the month is the inauguration of Chag Matzot. It's a holy day. 
Purim, of course, is exactly that way. Purim, according to Mordechai at least, is the 14th of the month and the 15th of the month. That's number one. The other parallels to Passover. But then the second legal section of, of Exodus, of course, is the Ten Commandments and, and the Book of the Covenant, chapters 20 through 24. And there we also have, it's interesting, we have in those chapters, we have God saying, do you want to accept it? They will accept it. After Moses comes down the mountain, Moses reads them, Moses tells them everything God has told Moshe when he was on the mountain. They all say, Naaseh. Then Moses writes it down in the book, and he reads it to them, and they say, Naaseh v'nishvah. Then Moshe says, this is the blood of the covenant. So what's very interesting is, and I think the correct avenue to explore, is the, and the, that's what they're picking up, is that the way the Jews accept the Torah in the book of Exodus is parallel to the way the Jews accept Purim in the Megillah. And the structure is identical, actually. The structure is a, a long story, and out of the story, you have a whole set of laws, basically. And one can read, actually, the covenantal chapters of Exodus in exactly the same way as I've argued. And fundamentally, the experience in Egypt, it fuels the, the book of the covenant. How you treat the stranger, how you treat the slave, how you treat the one who's oppressed, those are the key features. And these are all coming out of the story, the Exodus story. In short, what's striking is that the structure of the, of the Megillah and the structure of the first two books of the Torah are strikingly similar. That is an insight that I came to about a month ago, and ever since then I'm so pleased with myself, because you, know, you read the Megillah a million times. To me it's obvious, and I'll get to the implications of it in one moment. It's something that bothered me for 20 years. I've read a fair amount of stuff on the Megillah. No, nobody notices this. Um, it actually is, I think, very important <coughs> because it gets you, the frame is important, the, under, the structure is important because suddenly you focus in on what's going on inside the Megillah. And what struck me, something bothered me for 20 years and now I think I have solved the problem. I'll tell you what it is. Here's what bothered me for 20 years. Everybody knows that the Megillah is largely playing off the story of Joseph. That's, that's clear. Yosef appears in the Megillah in one form or through the language of Yosef. The Joseph, not just Joseph himself, but the narratives of Joseph. I would venture to say I could find you at least 50 examples in the Megillah, 5 examples in the Megillah of language that is parallel to the Joseph story. And it's not just language. It's fundamental themes of the Joseph story the identity of the Jew in exile, the culture of Egypt, all these questions, they're all appearing in the Megillah and they appear in the Joseph story. I would say 50. If I were challenged, I could find you 50 of them. You may not think they're 50. I think they're 50. But, but here's what bothered me for 20 years. What 20 years was that the Megillah is not just about Joseph. There's another fundamental piece of the Megillah that has no relevance to Joseph whatsoever. And it's very central to the Megillah. And that is this question of Haman, essentially Amalek. The Megillah is about Amalek. There are many references to Amalek in the Megillah. Now, the, the word Amalek never appears in the Megillah. That's true. And that's probably for a good reason. I can't get into all that now. But, but he is an Agagite, Agag. Agag is the king of Amalek, Melech Amalek. So therefore, the Megillah has many references to Amalek. And 
It also struck me that that's, that's not Joseph. But it struck me that the Megillah makes references, apart from Joseph, to another important character of the Chumash, even more important than Joseph. Our character, which is Moshe. The character of Moshe actually is used, the writer of the Megillah uses the Moshe story to tell the story. And I began to think about these two different things. The the appearance of Moshe in the Megillah. I resisted it for years. I tried to say he's not really there. But I think Moshe actually is there in the Megillah. <coughs> and I think the reason he's there, one question answers the other. The reason he's there, because when the Megillah wants to... The Megillah is Yosef plus Amalek. So Yosef is Yosef. But who's the one who fights Amalek? So I claim the one who fights Amalek in the Chumash is actually Moshe. Yoshua is the general who fights him below. But Moshe is fighting Am- Amalek and in two different ways. So since the topic of these classes is Moshe, I wanted to point out something about the role of Moshe in combating Amalek. And it actually has, I think, interesting connections to the Megillah. I don't think I understand it to the end. I'm not sure we ever do, but I think that it's... Let me first start with how, Mo- how the Megillah uses Moshe in the obvious way. I think it's all relevant. Our topic is Moshe. We have just recently read the story of the golden calf. And, of course, the key person in the golden calf story is Moshe. Now, what is it about Moshe in the golden calf that's so, that stands out? The first thing that stands out, this is relevant to our sessions, maybe we touched upon it already, is that when Moshe, there, there are two, in the, the Torah has two versions of the golden calf. Our version is in the book of Exodus. The book of, of Devarim has a different version of the golden calf. Similar, but different. But let's stick to the version that we have in Sefer Shemot. Sefer Shemot, Moshe is informed about the golden calf in chapter 32. He's still on the mountain. He's about to bring down these luchot. Chapter 32, page 183. So, the people, first it describes, the people realized or saw that Moshe was late in coming down the mountain. So they gather around Aaron. And they said to Aaron, Get up and make for us a God who will walk before us. For Moshe the man, Moshe Ish, Asher We don't know what happened to him. He's late. It's not clear that Moshe had told them how long he's going for. He had told them in chapter 24, I'm leaving you. I'm going up the... I'm going to get up the mountain. I'm leaving with you Aaron and Chur. That's what Moshe said in chapter 24. I'm leaving with you Aaron and Chur. But... And Moshe leaves, he takes Yoshua with him. Chapter 24. That's what it says in the Torah. This is on page... 100... And sixty-five. And Moshe Yeshua left. Moshe Yeshua But he's leaving behind Aaron and Chur. That's what it says in verse number fourteen. You wait here. You wait here. I've left with you Aaron and Chur. Whoever has a dvarim as a matter, means a legal matter. 
problem, matter, legal case, a judgment, should Yigash Alehem should approach them, Yigash respectfully approach them. That's what Moshe had said. But now we have in chapter 32, the people saw that Moses went with Joshua. Fine. But now in chapter 32, the people saw that Moses was late, tarrying, Boshesh. So what did they do? They went to Aaron. Now Moshe had said if you have a problem you should go to Aaron and Chur, right? Chur does not figure in the story. He's simply not in the story. Some Midrashim claim that they killed Chur. But we, the answer is we don't know what happened to Chur. He disappears. Chur is not in the story at all. Now, not being in the story means one thing for sure. He's not a participant in the golden calf. That's, that's what it means. We don't know if they killed him or he simply walked away or whatever. In the story he doesn't appear. He means apparently Chur was not a participant in the golden calf. Who's his grandson, by the way? Salah. But Salah ben Uri ben Chur. Whether it's the same person or not is irrelevant. It's the same name. In other words, Pitsala, one might say, is descended from the non-participant of the Ego. The, the, the Mishkan and the Ego are very similar, actually. Strikingly, the Mishkan is a kosher Ego, who knows? It's a kosher cheeseburger, I don't know what to tell you. But the, but the point is that the point is that Achor was not involved. That's a very important point. So Pitsala is uninvolved, is a purity to Pitsala, not involved in the Golden Calf. The other one not involved in the Golden Calf is Yoshua, because he's waiting for Moses. He doesn't even know what's going on. We'll get to that in a minute. And anyway, notice something interesting about the golden calf. <coughs> before we know anything, before the people say one word, the text says, the Torah says something about the people. In chapter, verse 32, it says, The translator says, the people gathered around Aaron. Which verse? Chapter 32, verse number 1. Gathered against, but but my point is, al is not what Moses had told them to do. Moses said something different. Mival dvarim yigash alehem, lageshet and lehikahel are not the same thing. Lageshet in Hebrew means to approach someone gingerly, to, you know, respectfully, cautiously, right? Vayigashet love you Judah is going to beg from the king. He doesn't know it's Joseph. He's going to plead with the viceroy. He's going to negotiate with the viceroy. You don't. You're not by yikahel al somebody to gather about him. You get the sense it's mobbed. It's one person, and people are pressuring him. They're, they're gathering even before they say a word, right? The other thing is the first word out of their mouth. What's the first word out of their mouth? First, uh, this kum get up and get up. <coughs> It's not Vayigash language. Get up. You can, you, see, you can actually picture it. The mob is surrounding him, pressuring him, and trying to coerce him, which they do, to build for them a, a God who will go before us, because Moses the man, Moshe Ish, we don't know what... In other words, we can't have a man <coughs> to represent God's interest, because a human being is mortal. can disappear. We don't know what happened to Moses. We want something that can't disappear. Namely, a product of our own uh, our own creation, which is a, 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 an ego. In any event, the point is that when they're approaching Aaron, fine. So Aaron builds the golden calf. Chor 
is disappearing off the face of the earth. According to the Medrash, he was murdered. Now, why, 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 why would the Medrash suggest he was murdered? We, we never know why the Medrash suggests, but I, I'll make a suggestion as to why they might suggest it. One of the... What the Medrash tries to do... Let me explain what the Medrash is trying. The Medrash is trying to give us a more nuanced a nuanced picture of what's actually happening. The Medrash does not mean, ever, I think, to simply supplant the text. Sometimes the Medrash suggests something that could actually be the most plausible reading of the text. But typically what the Midrashim are all doing is they are picking up on something they feel in the text or they see other texts and they're trying to fill out the picture. You have Moses' brother Aaron who was with Moses during the ten plagues was a according to some versions, a full participant and a willing participant and a chosen participant to take the Jews out of Egypt. And you have this same man making a golden calf. Well, what's going on here? So the point is, what the Midrashim try to do in the case of Aaron is actually a very good example of Midrash. They're not trying to say he's not guilty. That's for sure. Because, how could you say he's not guilty? Moses himself said, what have you done? you brought upon them a great sin. But the Midrash is very interested in reading the text, what might have driven him to do this? So having Khor get killed, you see, is not a justification of Aaron, but more of an explanation. He says to himself, if you haven't, if Khor is in fact, Khor does disappear. One might say, he's in, in terms of the text, he's dead. And what Aaron, so Aaron could have any number, if you're Aaron, Right? If it's Moses staying there, he's not going to build a golden calf. That we know. Moses is not going to do it. Saying, like, hey, I know he's going to build an ego. It's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Aaron's a different kind of leader. He's one of the people. So he's rationalizing it in a certain way. And there are many ways to rationalize. Here's one way to rationalize. If I don't do it, they probably kill me. Someone else will do it. They're going to me. At least if I do it, maybe I can manage it. I can control what he thinks. He can't. But he thinks he can control it. He actually tries to control it. Chag Hashem Machar. So what they're reading, is, and when you read this, actually, I'm not saying who was killed, but I'm saying when you read the Midrashim, you say to yourself, there's a lot of truth. It does sound like he's trying to stall them. It does sound like he's trying to redirect them. It, the text does say he's being forced, he's being threatened. That's another point. <coughs> Later when Moshe says to him, what did you do? He says, I don't know, you know the people, you know, you know the way these people are, they're in a bad state, he says. They said, make, make me a god. So I took this stuff, I threw it into the fire, and this, and, and this is what came out. When you read that verse, you say, what, what do you mean, what came out? The text says the opposite. To use a sculpting tool. He very carefully made it. What do you mean I threw in the fire and it came out? So you could say he's lying because he's afraid. Like people, that's what people lie. But actually, it could be, he could be telling the truth in a way. It's a lie, but it's also true. What he's saying is it came out means the truth of the matter is, and I'm sure this is right, I had no idea what's going to happen. As we usually don't know. I didn't expect, you know, when Moses walks down the mountain, he sees the people dancing around a golden calf with great enthusiasm. He goes to Aaron, what did you do? What happened? He says, it, he, he says and, and I'll put, use my words, that's what he's saying, he says, the truth of the matter is, I had no idea it would end up this way which is probably true. I thought I could control it. I knew they were in a bad state. I did concede to build it. That's true. 
But who, who could have imagined what, what happens? In any event, I'm just saying something about Aaron, but the point is, my, why do I mention all this? What's the relevance to our course entitled Moshe Rabbeinu, or whatever it's called? Because the point is, I want to make one point about Moshe, which is this. <coughs> Moshe on the mountain is pleading with God. He pleads with God on the mountain. God says, I'm going to destroy the people. And Moshe on the mountain, in our story, says to God, Moshe Hashem It's the reading for the first place. He says, How, why would you get angry at your people? God said, they're your people. Well, they're your people. We are my people, says Moshe. Did I, did I take them out of Egypt? Did I do the miracles? All the great miracles, <coughs> which God said were to show God's power and majesty. You did it. That's number one. So they're your people. And uh, that's number one. Because they're your people, <coughs> if you kill them, the Egyptians are going to say that you had bad intentions from the beginning. That's one way, that's, that's Moses' first point of negotiation. It's not going to look good for you, that's what Moshe says. That's, that's what the Chumash says. Chumash puts it in very human terms. It's, it's a bad idea for you. You're not thinking, you're, you're, I know you're angry, Moshe says to God, but think about your, what's best for you. What's best for you, your name will be told. The whole point of the Exodus, they'll know I'm God, they'll know I'm great, and I'm so powerful. They'll know nothing. You'll, you'll defeat your own plan. So therefore, it's a bad idea to kill them because they are identified with you. Don't tell me they're my people. People don't I'm, I'm, I'm a messenger boy. They're your people. Secondly, he says, Moshe, you made promises. Don't forget your promises. From Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, their descendants would become a great nation. Now, I know you offered to make me a great nation. <coughs> Moshe, in effect, declines. He says, I'm not interested. I, let's, let's get real. I'm not a nation. This is a nation. Work with what you got. So the Chumash says, Vayinachim Hashem, God relented of the evil. That's Moshe's, in, in, the, in Sefer Shemot, he prays on the mountain. One of Moses' great strengths is prayer. Maybe we'll get this someday. Moses is praise for the people. And now, that's very nice. So what does it mean that God, Vayinachim Hashem means what? This is chapter 32, verse 14. God relented of the evil that God had thought to do to, to his people. This important point. God relenting of the evil does not mean that God will not punish the people. That doesn't mean that. God relenting of the evil means simply God won't destroy the people. When Moshe is praying for us, don't destroy them. But God has not said, I'm not going to punish them. In fact, later it says God does punish them with a plague. So Moshe has accomplished his first, first point is God has agreed not to destroy the people. Now we read a few verses about Moshe. This is verse number 15. This is actually very instructive. Moshe So now he goes down, and he turned around, and he went down the mountain. So he went down the mountain, turned around, it's the first word, he goes down the mountain, he carries with him the, the, the two luchot. He took the luchot. The luchot were written from both sides, says the Chumash. Mizeh u mizeh, from this side and from that side. And the Chumash added, Va'uchot maseh ruhimeh, the tablets were the work of God. Va'michtav michtav ruhimu charuta ha'uchot, and the writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. Now, watch this. The first two verses are very interesting. First of all, the first word 
Let's start with this. The first point number one is that the story of the golden calf is not about whether Israel will live or die. The people. The people will live. That's clear. In other words, some of them will live. Some will be punished. Because what's taken off the table in the book of Exodus from the very beginning before he goes down the mountain is the idea that God will destroy the people. That's more than, not true in Sefer Devarim, by the way. It's different than Devarim. But here, the issue is not life or death. The issue is the nature of this relationship. The first word here, as we start out, is the word Vayifen. The word Vayifen has a history in the book of Exodus. And when you have a history, you look at the first occurrence of the word Vayifen. It's a very telling occurrence. Vayifen appears in the very first story of Moshe. It says, Moshe went out when he grew up. No, it's, uh, before the burning bush actually before the burning bush even the very first story of Moshe when he grew up he went out to his brethren it says he saw an Egyptian beating a Jew from one of his brothers he turned this way and that way he saw there was nobody he killed the Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. The text is unclear, actually, as to what that means, Fayar Kienish. It's very unclear. It lends itself to two possible interpretations. One is, he looked this way and that way. He saw there was nobody around. He thought what he was doing would never be, he wouldn't be caught. He wouldn't be seen. So since there's no one around to tell on him, he kills the Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand, so no one will find the body. That's one way to read it. What he's concerned about is getting caught. But he thinks no one can see. That's one possibility. The other possibility, and the two don't contradict, is Vayifet Kovachovayarkiyadish. He looked this way and that way, and he thought, this guy's being beaten up. Maybe somebody else will step in. Why should I step in? Maybe someone else. But he saw there is nobody else. When he saw there's nobody else, he kills the Egyptian. Either way, Vayifen Kovachov, the word Vayifen, you have that word Vayifen with Moshe, it's his first story of Moshe. It means he's totally alone. That's, that's what Vayifen means. Moshe, the first time we meet Moshe, he is completely and totally alone. And that's very important over here. Moshe goes down the mountain, Vayifen, the Chumash is suggesting something about the story. Moshe is a person who is alone. Now what do you mean he's alone? He has nothing with him. He has, he has, first of all, he doesn't walk down the mountain with nothing. He walks down the mountain with the tablets, with the luchot. And now the Chumash says a very odd thing about these luchot. First of all, it tells us that the luchot were written Mishnei <coughs> Evrehem. The writing is on both sides. That's number one. And then, strangely enough, it seems to repeat this. It could have said, to be Mishnei Evrehem. But the Chumash repeats it in different words. They're written on this side, and they're written on that side. Mizeh u Mizeh heim ketuvim. Why did the Chumash, there are two questions. Why did the Chumash mention that they're written on both sides? That's A. And B, once it mentions they're written on both sides, why did the Chumash repeat it and say both sides means on this side and also on that side? Mizeh u Mizeh. 
Let me answer the second question first. And that is that the expression Mizeh u Mizeh is not a neutral expression. Mizeh u Mizeh, just like Vayifen, this is how biblical narrative works. When you hear the phrase Mizeh u Mizeh, something jumps to mind immediately. Mizeh u Mizeh. It appears earlier in the Chumash. And this is actually a critical point about Moshe and his role. It appears in the following story. Chapter 17 of the book of Exodus. It starts by Yavo Amalek. Amalek came and battled Israel in a place called Rephidim. Moshe said to Yoshua, Gather people and go and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I go to the top of the mountain and I will take with me the staff of God. So Moshe went up to the mountain. Yoshua goes, gets the army ready. And then the Torah says the most strange thing about Moshe. That Moshe was on the top of the mountain. It came to pass that when Moshe would lift his hands up, Israel would be Govea, would be prevailing. Seventeen, the middle of seventeen. It's the reading for Purim, actually. Not surprisingly, it's the reading for Purim. When he put his hands down, Amalek would be victorious. I'll get back to that verse. There's also something very interesting about that also. Next verse. Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a rock. They put it underneath him. He sat. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. This one on one side, Mizeh, and the other person, Mizeh. His hands were steady until nightfall. So Joshua weakened Amalek and his people by the sword. That's the first piece of the Amalek story. The first thing we see is that in that story, Moses says, I will send the mountain. He doesn't mention anybody else. I will send the mountain with the staff of God. He has a prop with him, a staff of God. And then later, though, he can't sustain his hands, so two people are helping him. Aaron and Nechur, the two people he left behind when he goes up to the mountain, Aaron and Nechur. One is Mizeh, and the other is Mizeh. Mizeh or Mizeh. Now we come back to our little story. This is a, a great example of how biblical narrative works. A terrific example. The point is very simple. Vayifen, Vayered Moshe means Moses goes down, and the Vayifen, you hear the word Vayifen, because we have it earlier. He went down alone from the mountain. Remember, he left all the people below. The only person who's not involved is Joshua. I mean, we don't, we don't know yet where Yoshua is. Moses has been up there for 40 days. Where has Yoshua been for 40 days? Where, where is he? We'll see in a second. But Moses goes up the mountain. The Chumash said, when he comes down, he has something very dear with him. It was probably parallel to the staff of chapter 17. He has the Torah. He has the Luchot. The Luchot, are, says the Chumash, are now written on all sides, but they're also written Mizeh or Mizeh. Now the Mizeh or Mizeh of chapter 17 means those that support him. In 17, he's weak, he's alone. But he has support. Moses, left to his own devices, can't can save the people because his hands are too heavy. But fortunately, he has people to help him. Mizel, Mizel. 
Erin and Hur. Right? And the moment you think about Mizel Mizer, and he's going down the mountain, you ask yourself the obvious question, and when he left to go up the mountain, what did he say in chapter 24? I'm going up the mountain, and behold, he said, Aaron Bechuri Bachem, I live with you Aaron and Hur. But now we the reader know, where are, where are Aaron and Hur? Well, Hur has disappeared off the face of the earth. Maybe he's dead, possible. He's, but whether he's dead or not dead, he's, 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 from the standpoint of the text, he's dead. I mean, he's not in the text. So Hur is a missing in action. Hur is not a factor in the story. So he certainly is not a support. He didn't prevent the golden calf, let's put it this way. He didn't participate, clearly, but he didn't prevent it. What about Aaron, his other main supporter? What's his role in the golden calf? Obviously, he built the damn thing. To, I mean, Aaron makes a golden calf. There's no way around it. So the two people who support him in chapter 17, whom Yechumash says, Mizeh u Mizeh, are conspicuously at best absent. At worst, they sold him out. At worst, they actually made the golden calf. So that support he doesn't have. But he has a different support when as he comes down the mountain. Something does support him. Well, we'll get to Joshua. We don't know Joshua yet. We'll see about Joshua. He has the tablets. He has the tablets supported. That's of course true. Moses is supported by the, by the Luchot. The Luchot are Mizeh or Mizeh. That's what the Chumash says. It's like the Evan in the story just in chapter 17. You have the stones under his under his Stones are underneath him. That's right. That's well, well said. Luchot, right. That's, that's a good point actually. That you have the Evan in 17 as well. The Evan supports him. He says, by Yehu Evan, by Yashimu Tachta, by Yeshev Allah, is a good point. That's an excellent, a good point. Here it's also the Luchot Evan, is that correct? Actually, here it goes the Luchot Oedu, but they are Luchot Evan, you're 100% right. The Torah earlier said, here it's curious, it said they were an Evan, but, but the point is still well taken, I think. But the problem with the Luchot, that are Mizel, means they support him. But the Chumash says before that, something else, they're written in Mishneh Evrehem. Now, why did the Torah say that? Because I think that for the following reason, what is the significance of the fact? Well, why is the Meshach all together? That the writing is on both sides. Well, who cares? So it's on one side. Well, 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 well. As we say in the Yeshiva, who cares? What's the difference? But there is a difference between writing on one side and writing on two sides from this, from this narrative perspective, from the point of the story. When something is written on one side, okay, then you can conceal it. It's concealed. I can go into the camp, they're all dancing around a golden calf, I have my book with me, okay, you know, I have my book, but everybody, no one else who's dancing can see the book, because I'm over here and they're over there. But if something is written on both sides, the point of both sides means that you can't actually, if you bring this thing into the camp, who's worshipping a golden calf, and very simply, the text, the luchot are evident to all those who stand before, no matter where you stand, because it's written on all the sides. In other words, the point what the Chumash is setting up is the following very significant detail. Moses is going to walk into the camp, and he can't bring the tablets into the camp. The tablets and the people are mutually exclusive. You can't have people... You can't have the tablets are in their face, as it were. But they're worshipping a golden calf. So Moshe will have no recourse then but to destroy the tablets. The Chumash is setting up the reason, actually, 
that when Moshe comes into the camp, he must break the tablets. The Chumash never condemns him for breaking the tablets, ever. Because it's obvious, the tablets and the ego are, are mutually exclusive, but to highlight that point from a narrative perspective, it makes it emphasizes the Luchot are written on all sides. It's not that you can conceal them. You can, if you bring them into the camp, you have a golden calf community, which has in the middle of it a big, a big orange Kodesh. That's not going to work. It doesn't work. And therefore, Moses will, if Moses is to, is to fight for the people, what the Chumash is setting up is that the one thing that's so dear to him, the one support he does have, actually, then renders him not alone, okay, is the Ruchot Mizeh Mizeh, the support. But the Mizeh Mizeh is going to go by the wayside, given the fact that he can't actually bring the Ruchot down. Why not? Why can't you bring him down? Because, you, because it's still visible, because it's on all sides. So therefore, they're in, they are incommensurate. So what does he have? He's, he's, he's going to lose the Ruchot later. Aaron and Chur, goodbye. But he still has his beloved disciple, Joshua. He said Joshua. And Joshua, of course, is not only in chapter 24. Joshua is the one who fights Amalek in chapter 17. I'll get back to the deep significance of this in a minute. I touched upon it in my Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah, on one of the chapters. I, that's the one chapter I think we could have done a better job on, that chapter. There's much more. But in any event, so now, but now we have Yoshua. So now we have the following. Verse number 17, by Yishma Yoshua at Kola Ambareo. Joshua heard the sound of the people, Bereo, who were crying out. By Yomarel Moshe, he said to Moshe, there's the sound of war from the camp. This is actually a very important verse if you think about it. First of all, number one, it means that Joshua doesn't know. Moses is away for 40 days. Moses, the, the picture. Moses, Moshe says to the people in chapter 24. So it's, this is what the Midrash, the Midrash, the tradition picks up. It says, I am going to go away for a while. He doesn't tell how long. I'm going for a while. It's going to be a while. I'm leaving behind Aaron and Hur as judges. The judges. And I'm going to leave you. And Moses leaves. And Joshua goes with him. And Moses ascends the mountain. He's there for... 40 days, almost 6 weeks. Where is Joshua for 40 days? Where is he? It's obvious where he is. He's at the foot of the mountain. He's at the foot of the mountain. I mean, my wife was, did a lot of volunteering this year at a therapeutic farm. So, she's walking around the farm with this guy. Whatever, show us something. He has a dog. Maybe it was a different farm. Maybe it was in Carol. I forget which one. There's been several. So she... There are four in the States. It's very interesting. It's another conversation. There are four of these places in the United States. Walking around with this guy. He has his dog. He's walking around. He turns to the dog. Whatever the dog's name is. You wait here. I'm going to walk. I want to show her something. Walks around. They walk for six hours. They come back. The dog hasn't moved. Six hours, the dog is there. That's Yeshua bin Nun. That's Yeshua. That's what it means to be a, a pupil, actually. So, to be a pupil. So the women never, women don't have a Rebbe is the problem. Because you don't run Yeshiva for ten years. If you have a Rebbe, you understand it. The Rebbe speaks. Like I said about Samuel. He has, he has a voice. He runs, Ewa, you have called me. It's actually God's voice. But he doesn't distinguish those voices. There's no difference, actually. It's the same voice. 
the Rebbe speaks, you wait. He says, wait here, you wait. Yoshua is the ultimate pupil. He's, he's, he's Moses' disciple. I'm going, Joshua, please wait here. Okay? He doesn't say how long. The man is waiting at the foot of the mountain for 40 days. He hasn't moved. He has no idea what's going on inside the camp. How far is the camp? It's not very far. Not far. He hasn't moved. He turns to Moshe and says, can you imagine the loyalty here? <coughs> Master, Chapter 32. What's chapter 30? Chapter 32, verse number 17. <coughs> Moses comes down the mountain. It's our primary text. He says, Master, I hear the sound of war. That's what he says. That's what he says. Now remember, who was Yoshua? What do we know of Yoshua bin Nun? We know just one thing. When they had to fight Amalek, Moshe said to Yoshua, gather the troops and fight. It means he's a general. That's what it means. He's a, he's a military man. So as a military man, of course we understand. What is he hearing? He hears the war, of course. That's what military men are going to hear. Uh, I remember with Schwarzkopf in the Iraq business. They asked, Schwarzkopf was the head of the uh, army there in the Iraq. They asked uh, General Schwarzkopf, can you tell us how generals think? He says, they think generally, he said. It's <laughs> 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 exactly what it is, you know. He hears the noise. It's the sound of war. And now we have the next pasuk. Vayomer, he said, En kol anot gvurari, en kol anot chavusha, kol anot anochi shomea. Who is the he of verse 18? Most of the Mepharshim think it's Moshe answering him. Moshe said to Yoshua, one second, it's not the sound of the one who is winning, and it's not the sound of the one who's losing. It's not gvura and it's not chavusha. The word gvura and chavusha appear together in one other place in the Torah, maybe the Bible. It's chapter 17 of this book, Amalek. That's And the previous verses say, when Moses will lift his hands up, So we have all the language, maybe the Evan. And we have and Gvura. And we have Yoshua bin Nun. All of the language, Amoric language, we'll get back to this a little later. But whether Moses corrected Yoshua, it's not a winning and not losing, it's a, I would say, a tortured cry, not a song. Kol anot. From the word inui, kol anot. That's just answering. Kol anot anochi I heard a sound, a cry. I can't make out the cry. Whether it's Moses correcting Joshua, or maybe Joshua self-correcting, but the point is, I think, especially if it's Moses correcting him, and there's a very powerful point over here about Moshe and Yoshua. We should not forget, by the way, that in chapter 27 of the book of Bamidbar, when Moses is told he's going to die, he turns to God and says to God, O Lord, who knows the spirit of every person, choose somebody to lead the congregation. In order that the congregation not be like sheep that have no, have no shepherd. He did not say to God, now that I'm going to die, what about Yoshua bin Nun? He never mentions Yoshua bin Nun. God says, take Yoshua bin Nun who has spirit and place your hands upon him. From the Chumash, it sounds like Moshe does not think that Yoshua bin Nun should be the leader of the people. And the reason is very simple. The reason is that Moshe's conception of the leader, as he says it, they should not be like sheep that have no shepherd. He's not a shepherd. Yoshua bin Nun, he likes Yoshua bin Nun. Who wouldn't love Yoshua bin Nun? Guy waits here for 40 days at the foot of the mountain. 
He's Mr. Dependable, and he's there, he's going to be there for you. Forever. He'll wait 40 years, too, by the way. It's not just 40 days. He'll wait forever. Because he's Moses Mishamet, as the Chubish calls him in Bamidbar. When Elder Omegad is Adonim Moshe Klaim, he's zealous for the Master. More zealous than Moses is, actually. Moses corrects him. Moses says to Yeshua, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish they'd all be prophets. I'm not saying Yeshua's wrong. That's not my point. I'm saying something else. They're not on the same wavelength. Moses and Yeshua are on different wavelengths. It's not, it's the disciple whom the master thinks has a little understanding of what I'm teaching. That's a very, that's a very powerful point over here. You have this in, in our Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, in two places actually. Maybe three, but two jump to mind. One is Moshe and Yeshua. Moses did not ask that Joshua succeed him. He's not what Moses wants as a leader. He's faithful, he's loyal, but he doesn't see things the same way. Oh, Master, lock them up, shut them up. When the elder, chapter 11 of Bamidbar, what, you jealous for me? I wish they'd all be, you don't understand, I wish they'd all be prophets. Prophecy is good, okay, so they, they disobeyed me. I, I can live with it. Here also, I hear the sound of war. It's not war. You're not hearing what I hear. We hear different things. I hear kol anot. That's one. And of course, by, in my favorite movie, it's not from the Hebrew, my favorite movie, Winter Light. We showed it once at Risha, actually. Winter Light is Bergman's old picture. It's a great, great picture. It's called Winter Light. So we'll show it again. Winter Light. Winter Light by Ingmar Bergman. It's a great picture. It's my number one favorite picture. In that picture, he has, without giving the whole movie away, but it doesn't matter. If you know the movie, it's worthwhile to see it. Point is, it, he talks about, the, the, at the end of the movie, this, this basically he's a gabai. He's a, he's a, he works in the, in the church, basically. The church has virtually nobody going to it except this pastor who's lost faith. And he goes to him with his question about, about Jesus, about the death of crucifixion. He says, about the so-called suffering. What's the suffering, he says? He suffered for a few hours on a cross. I suffered much more in my life. But I think I have an answer, he says. The answer was not the actual suffering. The answer was he realized, he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? And God didn't answer him. So it was God's silence. But not only that, when he goes, if you know the story, he goes back and he realizes, he goes to, he goes to all his disciples. He realized that not a single disciple understood a word he was teaching his whole life. That's what he says. He always understood. They, they deny him at the end. They're all sleeping. They go, he goes back and they're sleeping. It was one, actually one of the great stories. They're all sleep, sound asleep. He understood at that moment he has no disciple. That's what he understood. That's exactly the story over here. He has Aaron. He, in the story of Amalek, he has three other characters. There's Aaron, there's Hur, and there's Yoshua. Aaron and Hur, forget about. Aaron makes the golden calf. Hur is not present. He's actually gone. But the most painful in a certain way is Yoshua, because Yoshua actually is loyal. He loves Yoshua. He loves his, He worships Moses, basically, one might say. He's there. He's so loyal. He's waiting. And what Moshe understands in the story is, because why is the story here all together? Why did the, that's the real question. Why does the Chumash include a dialogue of Moshe and Yoshua? What do you need it for? So, what's the relevance? The relevance is a different point. The relevance is about the aloneness that there is absolutely nobody for him. He's completely and totally alone. And the one person, the one faithful one, 
faithful both in the sense he's waiting there, but also faithful in a different sense. Very important point. Yoshua is a non-participant for sure in the golden calf. He doesn't even know what the golden calf is. He doesn't know what the sound is. He misunderstands it. So it means he was never there. So he's, he's clean, he's pure, he's loyal, he's faithful. But what's the point? The point is, he's not hearing what Moses, Moses, Moses and Yoshua are not on the same wavelength. They hear different things. It means he's, what does he have left? He has the Luchot. But he's not going to be able to keep the Luchot either. Mizel, Mizel. Because when he comes into the camp, he could keep them for himself. Because God offered them to Moshe. God said to Moshe, I'll give you the Luchot. Forget that. They're hopeless anyway. Forget that. Who needs them? Let's start over again, just me and you. That was Moshe's option. He could have done it. I'll destroy them and, 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 you'll, be, and you'll be good. But no. When he came down to the camp, when he went into the camp, he saw the calf and he saw the dancing. What's interesting is, what precipitates his great anger. It's presented as he loses his temper. What he sees is he gets angry. What, what did he see that made him so angry is interesting. It's not the fact that they're worshipping the golden calf. The Chumash doesn't even mention the worship, by the way. It doesn't say a word about worship. God said worship. They made a golden calf. They bowed down to it. They worship it. They said, these are the gods that took you out of... Out of. When Moses goes into the camp, though, Moses knew all that. That's not a surprise. He didn't know something else. The Chumash never mentions worship. When he went into the camp, since Vayara to Egel he saw the calf and the dancing. He doesn't see worship. He sees a kind of joyous dancing. But the Chumash said, to make merry, whatever that means. He saw them completely out of control and he sees this, he sees actually the deep connection to the golden, that's what he sees. That's what, that's what causes the great anger. It's not connection. Connection is profound. He got up early. Calf. They're dancing around it. He got up early in the morning. That's what he. That's what he. That's the problem. The problem. Connected to their profanity. Well, it's connected to whatever the golden calf is. It's themselves, but it's also a graven image. It's the god of Egypt. It's, he sees that they haven't left Mitzrayim. That's what he sees. These are the gods who took you out of Egypt. Means you're in Egypt. Means God never took you out. So you, you're still, it is spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, intellectually speaking. You've never left. That's the story of the golden calf. Now, what is the relevance to... I mentioned the Megillah. <coughs> Here's what struck me about Megillah and Esther, actually. In the Megillah, what happens is that Mordechai informs Esther, we know, of course, that the Jews are going to be killed on the 13th day of Adar. Esther doesn't know this. Everybody, all the Jews know it except for Esther. She has no idea... She actually sends out a messenger to Mordechai, in the words of the Megillah, Ladat Mazer Vial Mazer. By the way, Mazer Mazer is another phrase that's found in the Megillah, two, two different places. One is Ladat Mazer Vial Mazer in chapter 4. Esther doesn't know what is Mazer Vial Mazer. And then later in chapter 7, when Esther's going to plead with the king, it's, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? The second party, tell me already what you want. Third opportunity, okay, I'll tell you. There's someone out to kill me and my people. What does Achashverosh say? Mihu zeh vi'ezehu. The place of mihu zeh vi'ezehu. 
So the Megillah likes the Miu Zevi Ezehu and Ladat Mazevi Al Mazev. Point is, Mordechai tells her, and then he says, You've got to go save the Jews. I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. I'm, she goes. And here's the point about she goes. When she goes, the, one of the main points about the story is that she, number one, does not do what Mordechai tells her to do. Mordechai says, Go and beg the king. She does not do that. She devises her own plan. But the point of this, and this is actually a very important point for the Megillah. The point is that when she goes to Achashverosh, the idea of being alone is very striking. In fact, the idea of aloneness in the Megillah, it appears actually in three places, but the ones that interest us are two. First of all, Mordechai is alone. That is to say, everybody in the court, everybody, Kol Abdei Abelech, are bowing down to Haman. Every single person in the court bows down to Haman, except for Mordechai. Haman, it says, decided not to kill Mordechai Levado. He doesn't want to kill only Mordechai, for they are told that Mordechai was a Jew. He determines to kill all the Jews. I would translate the verse, by the way, or one way to translate that verse. Vayivez b'yainav l'shloach yod b'mordechai levado can be translated. It doesn't contradict the other translation. It means simply, he didn't want to kill only Mordechai, he wants to kill all the Jews. But I would say, you could also read it as, he determined not only to kill Mordechai, who was Levado, but to kill all the Jews. The idea that Mordechai is alone, and, and the only one, everybody else is bowing down except for Mordechai, is a very important point about the Megillah, and it has an echo in the story of Esther. Esther sends back a message to Everybody knows, she says, that if you go into the king and you're not called into the inner chamber, here everyone is put to Tolamit Levad, except. There's only one exception if the king extends the scepter. Now I haven't been called for 30 days. That's okay, he says, take your chances. So she's going to go, but it's very risky. But the, my point is, it's, it's Levad. The very entry into this space is so exceptional. And she goes alone. There's no one else who can go. And in the story, there's no one else who can save the Jews. The, the, the Megillah makes that very clear. Nobody else can save the Jews by a very simple ploy. Because the Megillah added detail that seems unnecessary, which is that you can't enter. All the Jews are in mourning, it says. And Mordechai went up to the gate of the king. You can't enter the gate of the king if you're in mourning. But all the Jews are in mourning. So it means no Jew can enter the gate. There's only one Jew who's not in mourning. And that's Esther. She doesn't even realize. So the point is the idea of going alone. And the point is that to, to strengthen this point about going alone, which is so important, is that, and this is a separate, I don't want to get into this right now, but as many, many have noted, the story of the main, first one to note this really in a real serious way was a guy named Fish, Amos Fish, a very important essay about the Megillah now 30, 40 years ago. And what he pointed out, I mean, the first piece of it is obvious, but that the story of Esther and Mordechai and Achashverosh has striking similarities to the story that appears at the beginning of the book of Mulachim with, with, with Avishag Shunamit and with Shlomo and going in into and in Bathsheba and with Natan Navi. In that story, Natan and Bathsheba go to the king, to his inner chamber actually, to intercede on behalf of their son Shlomo. And over here you have a parallel story where Esther goes into the inner chamber 
to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. But the difference between the two stories is that in the case of Bathsheba, not only does Nathan tell her what to say, and she does say what he, what he tells her to say, but he also goes himself. They go together, yeah. separately, but together. Yeah. First Bathsheba, then Nathan. In the case of Esther, though, she's the only one. And not only that, in the case of Esther, the one that she's appealing to save the Jews is the very person who issued the command to uh, destroy the Jews. It's not the same as David. David seems doesn't care one way or the other who the king is. That's what it sounds like. But he doesn't know what's flying altogether. Who knows? But the fact of the matter is, he didn't choose Adonia. He didn't choose anybody. He's a sick old man. He chose nobody. So there you have to change his mind. There's less, but here you have to change the mind of the man whose who seal was on the decree. Whether he knows what he does, what he does know, what he, who knows what he knows and doesn't know. You can read it different ways. And what? And how there. Right. Right. She has to orchestrate it, and she doesn't do what Mordechai tells her to do. She doesn't go beg the king. She constructs these two parties. She's very carefully constructed. She goes her own path. Her own. She has her own method of doing business. She has her own design, her own device, her own plan, and she's com- the only one who can do it. And she's totally alone. And the dangers are very great. In the, in the case of David, yes, there's a danger. If Bathsheba fails, someday Adonia will kill her, and there's a danger. Here, the danger is right away. If you enter, he doesn't accept you. You're put to death. So the dangers are greater. The aloneness is greater. And she's totally on her, on her, on her own. The, the plan Mordechai <coughs> has is a bad plan. Here's the point I want to make, though. Here's, here's the point. The point is that the story of Esther has two pieces to it. When Esther goes into the king, first piece, king says, what do you want? What do you want? You made these... I want my life and the life of my people. We've been, we've been, we've been we're set up to be killed. If we had just been sold as slaves, we would have kept my mouth shut, but we're going to be killed. Who would do such a thing? This wicked Haman, Haman Arazah. The king gets up, goes out to the garden, comes back, Haman's fought on the couch with Esther. What? You would molest the queen in my own house? So the, one of the uh, officers, Harona, says, you know, he has a, even put up a tree, a gallows, to kill Mordechai, who's such a good guy. Kill him, hang him, so Haman's finished. That's chapter, beginning of chapter 7. And then the king appoints Mordechai to a position, Haman is killed, very nice. Now, chapter 8, Esther continues to beg the king. I mean, she begs the king. The king has not agreed to, to rescind the decree. Esther begs him in chapter 8 to rescind the decree. The decree is still out there. On the 13th of Adar, all Jews are going to be killed. Okay, the king will exempt Esther, who he likes, and Mordechai. That's great. But all the other Jews are going to be killed. So she's begging the king. Please restore, please rescind the decree. What does the king say? He can't, can't change it. He can't change it. He says again, he can't change it. But you can issue a second decree, he says. Second contradictory decree. Now, if you look carefully at what Esther says, she added a very important verse. She says, please, she says, you have to rescind the decree. She added, because how could I be see the evil that will befall my people? How could I see the destruction of my of those about my family, Malatati, whatever it means, those who come from similar from ancestry or whatever? So she would be protected. Sounds like she's protected, but the people. The point. The point is very simple. 
Achashverosh, it's obvious, couldn't care less if the Jews live or die. And actually, he has no intention of rescinding the decree. It's clear. Esther's another story. Mordechai saved his life. Esther's the queen. He's going to protect them. But, everybody else, they'll die. What does he care? He's not actually an anti-Semite, necessarily. He just doesn't care. Because why, why bother? You know what I mean? They'll die? Okay. What Esther says is, listen, please don't do that. Because how could I survive, she says, if I see this? The, Esther's prayer is not about how good the Jews are. It's nothing to do with the Jews. It's a different appeal to Achashverosh. He does care about her. He said, you want to keep me happy, don't you? <coughs> and you better take care of them, because, because I, I, can't, I can't live this, the, the other way. That, just, just one second, before you comment, yeah. the person who makes the identical plea is Moshe. That's Moshe's exact strategy in the story of the golden calf. It's exactly what he says. Here's, here's how the story unfolds. In chapter 33, chapter 33, God said to Moshe, take the people up to the land of Canaan. Take them to the land of Canaan. What time is it now, by the way? It's 11 o'clock. Oh, it's time to go. Give me, give me three minutes then, okay? The, um, the, the clock is off. Right, okay, it doesn't matter. Here's the point. I had no idea. So the point is, um, Moshe says, God says, take the people to the lands, to milk and honey, chapter 33. I'm not going with you. If I go, we're going to fight, I'm going to kill them. Yeah, I'll send an angel in my place. Okay, people are very sad. People want God to go. God not going means no Mishka. So Moshe says to God, later on in that chapter, you told the people who's going, you sent an angel with them. But who are you sending with me? You like me? You said you like me. Uses the word chain. Appears many, many times in the story. Same language with Esther. I know you love me. What about me? Oh, as far as you're concerned, I'm going to go personally with you, says God. I'll go with you. So Moshe says in chapter 33, if you're not going with us, then what's the point? Right? How will we know that, that you singled us out? If you go with us, and, and the people will be very... God said to Moses, this also I will do, because you have found favor in my eyes, and I have singled you out. What's the, what's the conversation? It's very simple. Moshe says, what about me? Oh, you're different. You, I love you. So Moshe says, you've got to go with me. You've got to go with me, then you have to go with us, because I'm with them. So God said to Moses, okay, this too I will do, because I do love you. You're very special to me. That's exactly the strategy of Esther. And when you see that, suddenly many things become clear that I'll speak about next week. About, actually about the Chumash and about Moshe. What you see is something very, very important about the Chumash. You see this even without the Megillah. The Megillah helps us through the Megillah, but you don't need the Megillah. You see, one thing very interesting, there seems to be a very deep connection in the Torah between the story of Amalek and Moshe and the story of the golden calf in Moshe. That's what's obvious. The conclusions to be drawn from this, I will get to next week, they're very far-reaching conclusions. They actually have implications for the Megillah as well. And they have implications, I think, for this whole question of Amalek. Who is Amalek? What is Amalek? I think it's very interesting. I will make a suggestion next week. But you see that the way Moshe fights in the Golden Calf. You have Moshe, in a way, in two stories. We'll pick up next week with more of this. You have Moshe with Amalek, sending the mountain. There he has support. With Amalek, in the first story, with that Amalek he has support. 
with the golden calf, I would call the internal Amalek. That's why I would categorize it. With the internal Amalek, in this story, he has no support, actually. He's got nothing. He doesn't even have the Luchot, meaning he breaks them. He has Joshua, who is great, but Joshua doesn't get it. The different wavelengths. Aaron, forget about, sold it out. Hur disappears. He's got nothing. He's completely and totally alone. And somehow he has to figure out a way to bring God back to the people. To save the people. That's his real mission. He's got to save the people. The Esther story is based upon it. I'll make one last comment, which is very interesting about just a clever little point about the story of Esther, just to give an example. The Megillah says in the beginning of, I know Purim's over, nonetheless, in the beginning of the story of Esther, this is for next year's Megillah, in the beginning of the story, it says that Mordechai was a Jew in Shushan Abira, and he had a, he was fostering, the Hebrew word is Omein, but he Omein at Hadassah, he was caring for, or protecting, or adopting, Hadassah, which was Esther's original, he Esther Bato, though, was cousin Esther. Esther was an orphan. And then later in the very same chapter, he also instructs her not to say she's a Jew. And at the end of, after she becomes the queen, it says Esther behaved the same way, even after she became the queen, kasher ito, as she behaved when he was actually caring, when she was in his house, caring for her. So twice in the very beginning, in describing Mordechai and Esther, the Megillah uses the same word, Omein. Omein and Omna. And I was thinking to myself the following thought, which I think is quite interesting. We think about Mordechai and Esther, the team. They work together. But they work together in two different ways. In the beginning of this Megillah, Esther is completely in Mordechai's domain. He actually raises her, he cares for her, she's an orphan, he brings her up, he walks around the court to see how she's doing. It's very... It's very powerful, actually. It's like a little child he cares for. And he is Omein. He's, he's, he supports. Omein is to support. But later in the Megillah, she's completely, he tells her what to do. But she, she does it, but, she, but then she, she actually doesn't listen to him. She gives him the instructions. Right? Right? It's a reversal. At the end, she tells him what to do. Gather the Jews. I'm going into the king my way. She doesn't listen to what he says. She just, his idea is a bad idea to beg the king, speak about morality and ethics, forget it. Doesn't work, it's not going to work. I was thinking that actually the two stories of Moses are that way. In the first story of Amalek, what does the Torah say? I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's actually conscious, the Torah of Megillah. That he has support of Aaron and Hur. Mizechad u Mizechad. What's the rest of the Pasuk? His hands were emunah. What does emunah mean? It was steady. Emunah means steadfastness. Faithful. But it means omein. In the first story of Moshe and the others, they are omein. The two are people. Aaron and Hur are supporting him, actually. They're omein. The Megillah plays them. That's why the Megillah uses omna in the beginning. But later on, in the second incident of Mordechai and Esther, there she has no omen. She has a, a, an instructor tells her what to do, but then you're totally on your own. She's completely on her own. And that's the story of the second, I would call it the second Amalek, which is the internal Amalek, which is the story of the golden calf. In that story, there is no body. There's no Aaron, and there's no Hur, and there's no Mizel, Mizeh, and there's no Yoshua who's fighting. There's no body. There's only one person. 
which is completely and totally alone, and that the Megillah picks up actually, and actually Esther's plea to Achashverosh is Moshe's plea to God in the story of the Golden Calf. And next week I wanted to continue with further, uh, in terms of the Chumash that we're learning with Moshe, further, I think, inferences to be drawn from the story of uh, the Golden Calf and Amalek, which I think are interesting. Okay, we'll stop here then.